This morning we'll be beginning in Mark 6, verses 19 through 21. So Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Father, as we come to your word now, we ask that it would not just be interesting to our minds, but that it would affect us, that it would affect our hearts, that we would ask the appropriate questions, that we, it, would, it would be a time of reevaluating our walk with you and where our hopes are anchored and where our eyes are located. Father, I pray that you would uh, work through your spirit in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we finished up First Peter. Uh, that was a sweet time of, of uh, seeing how God's Word is so practical, though Peter penned those, uh, that letter 2,000 years ago, writing to Christians that are going through trials so practical for our lives. Uh, this week and next week, uh, we're going to be considering the topic of uh, giving. And uh, this week is going to be more uh, the biblical principle, the, the eternal focus we ought to have in our lives. In a sense, this is going to kind of put a bookend on our treasure principle uh, study. Uh, and uh, next week is going to be much more specific uh, basically an opportunity of application where uh, we'll lay out as elders our convictions uh, from the Scripture that have led us up to uh, asking you to pray about and consider really practical uh, means uh, of an opportunity to give. And, and so this week, we're looking at what does Scripture say? We can't say this enough because to do any sort of uh, project or, or a building project or to look to purchase a building with that as the goal, without Scripture guiding us, without uh, Christians praying and sincerely asking God uh, would be just a work of man and would be foolish. And... Uh, so today we want to uh, dive in uh, to the Scripture. And I, uh, your notes are basically the six keys to the treasure principle. We're just going to spend the whole morning in Scripture just using these as launching pads into these different texts as a way of getting our arms around uh, what it looks like living an eternal focused uh, life. And uh, 
uh, the main text of the treasure principle is found in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21. Now, the important thing to realize is that text is in the midst of a certain context, which is incredible. All of chapter 6. This is almost half of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is talking to believers. 14 times in Matthew chapter 6, he refers, he, Jesus says, your father. So he's speaking to believers. Jesus is saying, my father is your father. And the main point of all of chapter 6 is that my father is a rewarder. It's like he wants his children to know how bountiful, how rich, how loving, how giving, how caring your father is. And so before we can even dive into that, we can never take for granted the gospel. Because this is application to those who are already trusting in Christ. This is not the way you get saved. This is not the way you earn the favor of God. As the song we just sang, there's nothing you can do to undo one of your wrongs. All of our sins deserve eternal punishment in hell because our sin is against the eternal God. Which means you and I could never solve the problem we have. God, in His own mercy, in His own grace, if anyone is ever to be saved, if anyone is ever to avoid eternal punishment in hell, God must act. And He did by sending Christ the eternal Son of God, to take on flesh, to live the life you and I haven't lived and could never live perfectly under God's righteous law. And He came to this earth to go to a cross, to die. When He chose Judas to be one of the disciples, He knew from the beginning that would be the means the devil would use and God would use to bring him to a cross. And he chose it because that was his purpose. No one gets to heaven by being good enough. Our only, the only person that can ever call God their father is the person that is first recognized they are under the wrath of God justly that their father has been the devil, that we've been in rebellion to God. But when you see the gospel, when you see the good news, what God has done for you, sending his only son to go to the cross and on the cross bearing the punishment for your sins, when you trust in him by faith, you have the right to be called children of God. Now, because He's adopted you. He's forgiven your sins. 
you're a part of his family. And so all of chapter 6 that we're going to look at here is to those who have a father. And the question is, is now that I'm in this new family, what changes in my life? How does my perspective in this world change? What does it mean? And so, if you have your Bibles with you, open to Matthew chapter 6, and in warp speed fashion, I just want to glance through all of Matthew 6 in order to understand verses 19 and 21 within their context. If you open to Matthew 6, you'll see right away at the end of verse 1, or in verse 1 he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. That's what the rest of chapter 6 is about. Are you going to get reward on this earth from other people or are you going to live in such a way that you're living for reward from your Father, the one who's already adopted you into His family? This isn't to earn your Father's favor, for He's already your Father. You see that? And surprisingly, all of chapter 6 is about the Father being a rewarder. It's like Jesus is, it's almost like he knows it. No one knows the Father as well as Christ does. And it's like he's saying, oh, brothers and sisters, I see how you anchor your hope in your life and your eyes are set on so many things that will not reward. When my Father all along loves you and cares for you, will provide all your needs. So set your eyes on Him. So He says, don't do your good works so that other people will praise you. But in verse 4 He says, let your giving be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He will. It's a fact. And then he says the same thing with prayer. You know, don't go pray like the hypocrites do so everyone will see it. But rather, verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You see? That's the point. Chapter 6 is a one-point sermon. It's not a sermon on working and praying and fasting and the Lord's Prayer and all that stuff's in there. But the point is what we've already seen. That you have a Father and that He cares for you and don't live for another reward other than the reward that comes from your Father. You notice in verse 8, 
in this discussion of prayer, he says, do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. He knows your needs. He's a good father. And then he says, pray then like this, our father, this is incredible. No Jew before Christ has it ever been recorded of speaking of Yahweh as their father. Sometimes we assume all through the Old Testament they called Yahweh father. Yes, Israel is described as Yahweh's son sometimes, but the audacity of a human individual to call God father was so offensive. So when Christ would say this, it was shocking. And so when Christ is preaching this sermon, it is shocking. Your father, your father, your father, our father. And then what's the Lord's prayer about? Give us this day our daily bread. You're the giver, God. You're the father. You're the one who takes care of us. Lead us, Father. We can't lead ourselves. Forgive us. We can't forgive ourselves. Lead us not into temptation. When you fast, don't do it like the hypocrites to get glory from men. But in verse 18, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. See, all this is the context leading up to verse 19. Where he then says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. So here's what he said. He says, don't live to get reward from people or praise from people. Rather live to be rewarded by your father. Live to please him and not man. And then he gets to your practical stuff. Don't store up treasures on earth. It's the same point. You're either going to get praise on earth or you're going to store up treasure on earth, but rather... Seek to get reward from your father, praise from your father, and reward in heaven. So now he's getting real practical that you can live your life as though this stuff on this earth is what it's all about. Or you can live your life so that you please the father, that you seek Glory that comes from him and not from man. And you can store up treasure in heaven. Now we're going to come back to those verses, but I do want to show you the rest of Matthew 6 because it's so good. Verse 25, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. 
feeds the insignificant birds. That's how giving he is. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, of, O you of little faith? Will he not much more? It's believing God's provision into the future. And then he says, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. The difference between an unbeliever and a believer, one who has the Father and one who doesn't, is the Gentiles, they seek only after the things on this earth. This is what they're doing. Their focus is down here. But he says, don't be like them. Be like those who know their heavenly Father. And then he says, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, for sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And so there's certain people out there that are looking. They're watching. They're waiting. They're hoping in someone, in some place beyond this evil age. And that makes them weird. They're looking. They're watching. They're waiting. They're hoping. They're resting in Someone else that isn't here right now and someplace else that isn't here right now, which makes them very odd people. These same people are working and obeying and loving with eyes upward, looking forward with a peace, seeing a father who rewards their own. We're weird people. Right? We're not of the world. Jesus said they've received my word. I'm not of the world, nor are they of the world. Therefore, the world's going to hate them. But I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So we're here. We're not checked out. We're working hard. We're obeying. We're serving. We're loving. But our eyes are on a king that is coming. Who, yes, has already come, but is coming again. And our lives has a, have an eternal focus. These people are Christians. In 2 Timothy 4, 6, Paul, writing this letter, the last letter that Paul penned, written to Timothy, an old man, what's he going to say? How's he going to begin to close up this last letter? Here's what he says. 
2 Timothy 4, 6, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. That reward is for Paul and also all those who loved his second coming. Not his first appearing. Obviously, we love that too. This is speaking of the second coming. There's two types of people. Those who aren't focused on that day, don't view that day as a reward, aren't waiting for it anxiously, and those who are. And so my question is, do you love His appearing? Is that going to be a good day for you? Is this where you've kind of calibrated your life in all regards? Are you focused? Do you put your hope in Him? He will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who loved His appearing. And then he says, do your best to come to me soon, Timothy, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. That's the other way to live. Demas, who started in the faith, but fell in love with this present world, has deserted Paul. So Christian, you have a father. He will reward you. He is coming again. Is your life calibrated to eternal life? Do you make your financial decisions based on your eternal life in Christ? Do you live for the praise of man or have you set your hopes somewhere else? These, this is the treasure principle according to Randy Elkhorn. When he looks at verses 19 through 22 and he gets real specific, he's talking about finances. He says the heart of the treasure principle is this is you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Which is an amazing thing. We all know this world is going to pass away, and the new heavens and new earth is coming, but did you ever think that you can use your time in this world for eternal purposes? That you can take your actual money and use it in such a way 
that stores up reward in heaven. That's an incredible thing Jesus teaches. And one of the things Randy Elkhorn points out is, you might be uncomfortable with it, that God is a rewarder and that he motivates by reward, but you can't argue with Matthew chapter 6. The longest sermon recorded in the scripture, one whole chapter of these You know, chapter 5 to chapter 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. All of chapter 6 is motivating children of God to live in such a way where they'll be rewarded by their Father. Not to earn their salvation, but to store up for themselves. That's the shocking reality of what that text says. Treasures in heaven. And then he has six keys. The first key is this. God owns everything and I am his money manager. As children of God, we're given like perspective. These keys are like six truths that help us see this world in a way that no one else does. God owns everything. I'm his money manager, meaning we don't own anything. Psalm 50, verse 9, beginning in verse 9, says this. God says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, would I tell you? For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the most high and call upon me in the day of trouble and I'll deliver you and you shall glorify me. If you want to glorify God with your life, then let him be the giver and don't think that you're doing it for him as though he needs something from you. God is not broke. God doesn't need money. God doesn't need to be fed by us. But offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Recognize that you own nothing and everything comes from him. And thank him. And in the day of trouble, rather than think I'm going to do this in my own strength, in my own power, by my own wisdom, seek me in the day of trouble. And that will glorify me. You see that? The first key of the treasure principle is recognize we don't own anything. In Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2, the psalmist says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, The earth is the Lord's and all the people are the Lord's. Your soul is the Lord's soul that he owns. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. In Haggai 2, 7 and 8, he says, I'll shake the nation so that all the, so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. I'll fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. 
and maybe my favorite, Deuteronomy 8.17. God speaking through Moses to Israel after God has taken them out of Egypt. He says, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that I swore to your fathers as it is this day. So we can never become proud because of our hard work that's gained us wealth. Because where did you get the power? Where did you get the mind? Where did you get the motivation? Where did you get the wisdom to even earn that wealth? You see, it's easy to look at someone who doesn't work and just gets money from the government. Being a person who works hard, I put the food on my table. I work hard myself. It's really easy when we just paint the picture between someone who isn't working hard and someone who is. But God says, where did you get the motivation? Where did you get the power? Where did you get the wisdom? How did your circumstances land in such a way that you're in that circumstance? Everything you have is from Him. Which means we are stewards. We don't have time to look at it. Luke 12, Jesus gives a parable in verses 42-48 through about the faithful and wise manager and the foolish manager. A man leaves, puts a manager in charge. One of them gets drunk, starts partying. And the boss comes home and they did not have their mind set on what the Lord, what what their master had sent for them to do. And he comes at an hour he doesn't expect. Drinking and partying, eyes on this world. And he says, And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. This parable teaches that we're stewards. We're not owners. We will give an account to whatever we have and what we did with it. It's his money. Randy Elkhorn says, If you're investing God's money, you might want to ask God, what do you want me to do with your money? Or if you have time, what do you want me to do with your time? If you have a life, what do you want me to do with this life that you've given me that you're going to call to account? Because in Romans 14.10, Paul says, why do you pass judgment on your brother or you? Why do you despise your brother? For we'll all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So I feel 
that the number one job I have in this sermon as your pastor is to prepare you to remind you that your life is not your own. That it's been given to you by God. That we're stewards. That we're to look to His Word and say, God, what do you want from my life? And if you say in your mind, the only reason why Sam is giving this sermon is because he wants to purchase a building, you're wrong. Do you think there's any ultimate hope in some building? Our lot, Christ could come tomorrow. And we need to be reminded of who we are and what He's called us to. And so then, the second key is my heart always goes where I put God's money. Verse 21 of Matthew 6 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's interesting that it doesn't say where your heart is, your treasure will go, but where you invest, your heart's going to follow. Why ought you pray? When we give you the charge to go pray with your wife, to go pray with your children about how God wants you to give Him your time and your money and your life and what that looks like, as you do that, the reason why that's important is wherever you put it, those things, your heart's going there. And your whole life flows out of your heart. According to Proverbs 4.23, it matters where you invest your life. Because your heart will follow. The example he gives, maybe none of you have been looking at Walmart stock, checking your phone every day to see how it's doing, but if you invest a bunch of money in it, you'll begin to care. All of a sudden, your heart will be where you've invested. And so he says, when someone comes up to me and says, I wish I had a heart for missions, he says, well, you can have a heart for missions. What you have to do is decide a certain amount of money to give to a certain mission organization, start giving to it, and you'll have a heart for missions. You'll care. You'll want to know how it's going. But if your investment is all down here on this earth, our hearts go there. In Luke 12, in verse 13, Jesus said, our, our Luke records, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus is teaching. He gets interrupted. He says, Jesus, tell my brother to give me the inheritance. But he said to the man, who made me a judge or arbiter between you? And he said to him, take care then and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. It's not what your life is about. 
Your life doesn't consist in that. And he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have uh, nowhere to store my crops. He said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store my grain and my goods. Notice all the personal pronouns. My barns, my grain, my goods. He doesn't have the right perspective. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul shall be required of you. And the things you have now prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So your soul is actually God's soul. It'll be required back that very night. Remember the story of Zacchaeus? He was a short man. He was a tax collector. He was a one who ripped people off as he collected taxes. He was very rich. And he climbs up in a tree because he wants to see Christ. And Christ calls him down and says, I'm going to your house today. And then this is what you read in verse 6, Luke 19.6. So he hurried and carried and came down and received him joyfully. Zacchaeus loved Christ. He was supernaturally changed. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation, salvation has come to this house, since he is also the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So what happened when Zacchaeus found his treasure in Christ? I don't need this stuff anymore. My life has different meaning. I'm going to give half my money to the poor. He says this joyfully. And then he's going to pay back fourfold those whom he ripped off. Remember what happened in Acts chapter 2, verse 44? This brand new church in Jerusalem. It says, all who believed together had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. Well, that's weird. Human beings don't do this. You don't one day be a greedy, selfish person and then all of a sudden start seeing needs and giving it away. Unless... You become a child of God and your treasure is found somewhere else. And then in Acts 19.17, we read, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell on them all. So this is after the sons of the demons jumped all over the sons of Sceva as they were trying to cast out demons in Jesus' name. And then here's what it says. Fear fell among them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. 
Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Now get this. And the number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that they came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That was $6 million worth of books burned that day when they found hope in Christ. The second key to the treasure principle is my heart always go where I put God's money. When those find their hope in Christ and invest in it, their joy gets anchored where they invest. Third key is this, heaven and the new earth, not this present one, is my home. The reason why he says heaven and the new earth is once we die, our body goes in the ground, our soul goes up to be with Christ. And when Christ returns, the body's going to come back alive out of the ground and meet the soul in the air, and then we'll be embodied people. Our, our souls will be embodied again in a new body like Christ. And the new heavens and new earth will be established and we'll live forever on a new earth. And that's your home. This is not your home. That's why throughout the New Testament, Christians are called exiles or strangers or citizens of another world. Listen to Hebrews 11.13. These all, referring to Abel, Enoch, Noah, Sarah, Abraham, died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. That's what we are on this earth, strangers and exiles. 1 Peter 1.17 says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And in 1 Peter 2.11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh. In John 17, verse 14, Jesus says, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. These Christians are weird, exiles, strangers, who have our hopes set on this eternal kingdom. When Jesus is not defending himself before Pilate, and Pilate's scratching his head, don't you know I have authority over your life? He says, no, you don't have any authority over me unless my Father's given it to you, except for what my Father's given it to you. And he says, if my kingdom were of this world, my people would be fighting, which means his people are weird. You see, they're, they're not fighting to preserve and to build their heaven down here. 
but they're looking forward. Jesus was an odd king to Pilate. He couldn't understand this. And so the third key is that heaven and the new earth, not this present one, is my home. And then that leads into the fourth key, which is I should live today, not for the dot, but for the line. The dot is your time on this earth, and your life goes from your time on this earth for all eternity, and the eternity is the line. And you can decide what you want to live for, the dot or the line. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 9.23? If anyone would come after himself, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life in this dot will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what is the profit of man if he gains the whole world but forfeits himself? What he's saying is, is what if you get everything in this dot, but you lose your soul for all eternity? How foolish that would be. And we can be tempted to not live for the line and we're not even going to gain the whole world. We might just gain an ungodly boyfriend or we might gain a bigger house that I don't need. We don't even gain the whole world. And we can be tempted Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, that dot's going to end, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. And are you? is your focus on that line, are you eagerly waiting for Him? That's who He's coming for. Those who know that Father. And then Revelation 12, verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and power and the kingdom of God and authority of His Christ have come for the accusers of the brothers have been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God and they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. These people that were saved by the Lamb were people that didn't love their lives so much that they were willing to let the dot end. They loved not their life unto death. This is what is described. Daniel 12, verses 1. At that time shall arise Michael, this is speaking of the end, the great prince who has charge of your people, Michael the archangel, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been seen since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who have fallen asleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, meaning their bodies will come alive, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Both believers and unbelievers will live for all eternity. Their line will go on forever. One to everlasting life and one to everlasting contempt. And we need a reminder down here in this earth who we are and who Christ is and where the ship is going, what's coming. And then verse 3 of Daniel 12 says this, 
And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn to righteousness like the stars forever and forever. Your body that comes out of the ground will shine so bright that if you saw it today, you couldn't handle it. This is the line. This is what's in front of us. Man, this is taking way longer than I thought. Key five, giving is the only antidote to materialism. That's pretty self-explanatory. If you've got a materialism problem, start giving. Your heart will follow your giving. I'll read one text, Acts 20, verse 33. Paul says, I coveted no one's silver or gold apparel. You yourselves know that these hands have ministered to, the necess- to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it's more blessed to give than receive. Paul says, I'm going with more blessing. I'm going with more happiness and it's more blessed to give than receive. The sixth key is this, God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. Every person has needs. A house, food, clothing, and every family should decide what they need and then decide what God has called them, how God has called them to invest the rest of it for His glory and His kingdom. And I want to end by looking at 2 Corinthians 8 real quickly. In verse 1 he says, we want you to know, brother, so here's what's going on. Poor Christians in Jerusalem. Paul's going around to Gentile small towns and collecting an offering for them. Jews and Gentiles hated them each other up to this point. But when God saves people, crazy things happen. So he's speaking to those in Corinth, the Gentile territory. He says this, I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. He calls it a grace of God because it's supernatural what happened. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy are... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, and as I can testify beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, then by the will of God to us. He says it was shocking. We didn't expect it a group of people begging to take part in an offering in a severe test of affliction, and they were overflowing with joy. This is weird people. This is supernatural grace. And you can read the rest of chapter 8, and it flows into chapter 9. We're just going to look at verses 6 through 15 to end. He concludes this, encouragement for them to get this offering ready for these people. He says this, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly 
will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart. That's why we're asking you to pray. We're not strong-arming anyone. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. God doesn't want you to give for any earthly, fleshly reason. Even it, it, No pastor ought to twist your arm into it. For God loves a cheerful giver. And verse 8 says this, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, that means you'll prosper, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way. Why? To be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also flowing, overflowing with thanksgiving to God. And by their approval of this service, they'll glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them from others. And the point is this. You give, God will give you more, not to raise your standard of living, but to raise your standard of giving. And guess what goes up? Your joy. The most helpful principle I think he said is this. Those who store up treasures on earth every day get a day closer to death in the day they'll depart from those treasures. But those who invest in the kingdom of God, every day older they get, they get closer to their treasure. The greatest treasure seeing Christ face to face, seeing your heavenly Father, and your heavenly Father will be there with rewards for His people. So if you want to live a happy life as your body decays, as tough prognoses come in, as the wrong person wins the presidency, as the, the life seems to be crumbling, what's the key to these weird people that have peace and joy? They're investing in a kingdom that no one can, can destroy. It's a city that has foundations that will last forever. And Christ is the king of that kingdom. And it's just around the corner. This dot can end at any moment. And so it's our prayer that you would value your soul so much that you would think about these truths, remember these truths, and pray and say, God, how does my life, in light of you being my Father, need to be recalibrated towards you? Father, I pray you give us wisdom. As each and every family considers this, Lord, if we admit, if we're going to be honest, greed comes so naturally according to our flesh. Worry comes so naturally according to our flesh. Uh, striving in our own strength in a prideful way, comes so naturally according to our flesh. 
And so, God, we ask that you would use these words that Jesus preached to people that needed to hear them. He knew we would struggle with this. Lord, help us lean into these truths. Wake us up from any sort of earthly focus mentality and help us to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us when Christ returns. We pray this in His name. Amen.